Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. V.S. Holmes is my guest today. V.S. Holmes is an international best-selling SFF author. Now, SFF, speculative science fiction. We're going to learn more about this today. They created the Nell Bentley books and the Blood of Titans series. Their debut title, Smoke and Rain, won New Apple Literacy's Excellence in Independent Publishing Award in 2015 and a Literary Titan Gold in 2020. The book Travelers is also included in the Peregrine Moonlander mission as part of the Writers on the Moon time capsule. They also work as an advocate for disabled and queer representation in SFF worlds. When they're not writing, they work as a contract archeologist throughout the Northeastern US. They live in a tiny studio with their spouse who happens to be a fellow archeologist. They're not so tiny dog. And like many of us, they own way too many books for such a small abode. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, I'm thrilled to be able to talk to V.S. Holmes about their life, their writing, and all those spaces in between. Before I bring V.S. to your listening ears, Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, is a weekly audio and visual, video and audio podcast that showcases the remarkable people within our 2S LGBTQ+, family. By listening to our stories, we gain insight, understanding, and connection. So let's continue to connect while being introduced to amazing people and topics. This episode was recorded live, so do expect technical hiccups, voice snafus, and other unexpected hijinks, as it likely has happened. And that's okay. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or another audio platform, and you've enjoyed the content of this episode, as well as other ones in our series, do be sure to subscribe, leave a starred rating, a comment. That helps us with the algorithms. That helps to make sure that our stories, which happen to be your stories, get out there and they're listened to by everyone. And of course, if you're watching here on YouTube, now is the time to press subscribe Get those notifications for whenever a new episode comes out. Every week, be smitten with a brand new person. It's always a great thing. I do want to thank a few people. Pam and Karen Hoffman, Trevor, Jake, and Jody for their continual support through our Buy Me a Coffee. That helps us in so many different ways when it comes to technology. And, of course, the people who've reached out and said they've listened to every single episode. I'm stunned. My husband hasn't done that and he's forced to listen. So I'm happy. I'm shocked and extremely, extremely proud to have you on board. Uh, so Sue, David, Doug, thank you for reaching out. And even you, Dwayne, love you as always. I'm based here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and it's important for me to say that 
as I would like to acknowledge that I'm living within Treaty 6 territory and within the Métis homelands and Métis nation of Alberta Region 4, a traditional meeting ground, gathering place, and traveling route for the Cree, Sado, Blackfoot, Dene, Métis, and Nakota Sioux. I acknowledge all the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these territories for centuries. I'm grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are with us today and those who have gone before us. I continue to open myself up to listen, to learn, and to understand. And I hope you join me or continue to join me as we learn truths. I make this acknowledgement as an act of reconciliation and gratitude to those on whose territory I reside. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, my guest is V.S. Holmes. And now is the time to bring them up to our screen here on YouTube and to your listening ears on the various platforms. Welcome, V.S. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me too. You have an interesting background and... I, you are very prolific in the writing uh, realm, and I'm somewhat jealous, uh, envious, scared, intimidated, all those <laughs> other words that go with it. I, so many of these questions I'm going to give you, I know you've had before, but in looking at your background, science fiction, speculative fiction writer, but then contract archaeologist, and Archaeology and science fiction are not usually mentioned in the same sentence, yet I believe you've done so masterfully with your Nell Bentley series. Thank you. You know, so sure, one could say, oh, Indiana Jones or Tomb Raider when it comes to archaeology, but there's so much more with character and world building within your books. So why is it important to you to be able to marry the archaeology and the science fiction together. I think science fiction and archaeology, on a on a technical level, have a huge overlap. Um, maybe not, you know, at, at first blush, but both are about humanity and where we've been and and where we're going. And sort of, you know, there's the, the classic warnings in a lot of science fiction about you know where where we could end up and where we apparently have ended up um, <laughs> as as a species. But I think there's also a lot of dreaming that takes place in sci-fi. And I really wanted to kind of show that the intersection of how where we come from really influences where we're going um, for, for better, or for worse. You know, whether we are listening to those warnings or ignoring them or finding a, a really good roadmap out of where we are. So I, I really like exploring that. And, you know, both both are about humans and exploration and speculation about people and our communities and the way we interact with our environments. In science fiction, speculative fiction, is there a happy ever after at the end? Is that what one strives towards in their writing? Or is it one of the ones where you leave us to have those what ifs? What's important for you? I love, I love what ifs. Um, I, you know, there, 
there are as many answers to that, I think, as, as there are authors and frankly, probably readers as well. But for me, writing is asking questions. And it is up to the reader to answer those questions. Um, you know, I, I might put in hints about how I would answer those questions um, or how certain characters would. But for me, it's really about leaving it open and letting readers take what they will from, from our writing. Because, you know, no, no matter how much detail you put in, um, that, that whole thing about like, oh, well, why are the curtains blue, right? Um, you know, you, you can put in as much detail as you want, but that won't guarantee your reader will take what you intended. And oftentimes I think readers will pull things out of our work that we never meant to put in. Um, maybe it fits really, really well. That's happened to me. I was like, oh yeah, I never, never thought of that. <laughs> Great. Um, now I have. But I think it's really up to the reader. And I just like to posit, you know, theories or, or questions or observations that I've had and let the readers do, do the rest, do the hard work. Yeah. To fill in those blanks. Yeah. To fill in those spaces. Well, your latest book is titled Heretics and it's the fourth book in your Nell Bentley book series. What can you tell our listeners about the book itself, Heretics? So it's the fourth book of, of six. Um, and in it, the main character comes back to Earth after a bit of a hiatus. Um, and she, you know, she's a boots on the ground. She really, really loves Earth. She's a skeptic. Um, she's not into the high tech world, um, but, you know, cute girl smiled at her. So here we go. And this is her coming home. And she's been away for a little while. And a lot of things have changed since she was gone. And I really wanted to talk about what it's like when you come home and you realize as much as you may have wanted to come home, the space you left doesn't fit who you are now. And whether that's because you've changed or that space has changed, um, you know, it's probably both. And that was something I, I really wanted to explore, especially as a lot of us are seeing our world change very rapidly around us and, you know, our, ourselves changing too in, in response to that. When I look at the character of Nell, I see that she is an archaeologist. And so the mind starts wondering, oh, VS is basing this character on their life. And that's just where the mind goes. But in the description of Nell Bentley, archaeologist, an asshole, and functioning <laughs> alcoholic with anger issues. Now, V.S., we've only spent a few moments <laughs> with each other, but um, I'm not getting any of that other than the archaeologist part. So how, how much is the character of Nell Bentley based on you yourself? I think outwardly, um, a, a lot of aspects of her character are maybe aspects of, of my own character dialed up to 11. Um, you know, I, I definitely, you know, author, author V and archaeologist V are, um, fairly different. <laughs> um, you know, obviously they're both me. I like to joke that Nell is me when I'm allowed to say what I want. Um, <laughs> which, which isn't entirely true. Um, but I've also speaking of changing a lot. When I first started Nell's adventure, um, it was in 2014, 2015. And 
I was a very different person than I am now. And I was filled with this deep, deep rage all the time. And, you know, that's spilled over everywhere like rage does. And part of exploring those character was like, how the hell do I stop being so angry? And what also happens when a lot of that anger is very justified? Um, you know, again, look at look at the world that we live in. There are so many things to be angry about. Uh, so there, there's definitely aspects of my character. And certainly when it comes to archaeology, um, there, there are a lot of aspects of my career in her books. Um, I had a lot of fun with like the high tech archaeology stuff because it's like, oh, I've, I've always thought it'd be great if we could do something that would make this part so much easier. <laughs> it's like, you know, sort of daydreaming. Um, but a lot of the anecdotes, um, I would say almost all of the anecdotes that she shares are from my coworkers. Um, I, I have a little part at the end, just like, if you recognize some of your stories, thank you. <laughs> um, so that's that's been really fun. But I would say I, I'd like to think that I am less angry than she is. I'd like to think that I maybe listen a little bit better. Um, though a lot of the lessons that she learns are lessons that, that I've had to learn. Um, and I hope that I continue learning learning from those as well well yes absolutely and was Nell Bentley's story meant to be six novels long or was it something where you started and just said oh I'm exploring the character but I'm also exploring myself and this archaeological archaeology world within this and it just became too much to just contain it to a single novel Definitely that. Um, you know, I, I am captain. Oh, it's a standalone. And then, oh, crap, six books later. Um, my my original fantasy series started out as, as a single book and, um, you know, became four. So originally the story was just going to be the story that is in Travelers. Um, so I, I sort of knew the beginning and the middle of the end to that. And that was the only part of the story I wanted to explore. And then as I got to know some of the characters, oh, like, I can't just, I can't just let this go. And I also wanted to, you know, when, once that story was finished, I realized there were aspects of it that I wanted to go back and elaborate on, um, you know, especially because she is a white woman and she is digging a culture that is not hers. And, you know, she comes from a, a colonizer background and how to navigate that um, because it's something that I've, you know, come to realize a lot more now, um, in like a, a real hands-on way, uh, uh, how racist a lot of archaeology, almost all of archaeology is. And it's, it's a very, at least in the United States, it's a very white centered field. And it was something that I really wanted to explore and have her learn, you know, while she was navigating this this field that she really loved because i i adore archaeology I'm, I'm lucky that i i adore my day job but there are a lot of problematic aspects to it so how do you keep doing what you love when most of it is inherently problematic and that was really fun to to do so when you graduated from high school was the plan to become an archaeologist or did you just fall into it i I like to joke that I, I slipped, tripped, and fell into into a hole. Um, I was actually in the pre-med track. Um, I worked in healthcare for five years. It was something that I, I that meant a lot to me and still means a lot to me. Um, and I, I joke that I realized I preferred 
the people I studied to be already dead before I got my hands on them, um, which is a, a little irreverent. But I was doing the, the pre-med thing and I, I really wanted to study sort of more in a laboratory setting, um, human evolution. And I happened to be on a ferry going to my grandmother's funeral. And there was this gentleman who was also going there um, who, who I hadn't met before, but he was reading this newspaper article about this really, really ancient site in Crete. And it was supposed to prove that Homo erectus was seafaring because Crete was an island during that time as well. And I just thought that was so cool. And so he's reading this article and I said, you know, do, do you mind when you're done? Could I just read the, that cover article? It sounds fascinating. I'm studying human evolution. And he sort of looked at me and goes, well, that's, uh, that's my site. So we started talking. And because he happened to be going to my grandmother's funeral as well, we had the whole weekend. And by the end, he's like, well, you know, we need volunteers. It's not a paid gig. But your background, you're studying something similar. If you can get yourself there, you can dig. And so a few months later, you know, whirlwind planning um, and I guess, thankfully for me, unfortunately for them, it was during one of the uh, economic collapses in Greece. So it was very inexpensive to go. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I went and I just fell in love with digging and the sun and the sweat and just everything about it, the drinking. <laughs> and it just it got under my skin in a way that other things that I'd studied, though I'd been you know interested and driven, just hadn't clicked. And uh, then I, I did do a, a smaller dig in the United States because I wasn't sure, like, did, did I like it because it's Greece and, like, what is there not to like? <laughs> or did I like it because it was digging? Um, and it turned out it was, it was the digging and it was the dirt and it was the community. So what does it feel like when you do put that travel into that ground and you see the dirt move and shift? Can you describe that feeling or the sensations of that? I mean, it's, there's something deeply, at least for me, deeply spiritual with what we're doing. Um, you know, though a lot of what I'm uncovering is, is not my culture. Um, you know, some aspects being in New England, you know, there, there are a lot of colonizer stuff, you know, Euro trash <laughs> um, that, that we come across. But there is something incredibly profound about, you know, slowly, gradually uncovering these artifacts that someone has not touched for thousands of years, potentially. Um, and we, the, the occasions that we do come across grave goods, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll stand there and just look at this stain in the ground and think like that, that is, that was a person, you know, reduced to a grease stain in the soil, but that was a human person who was loved or not. Um, but who had a life and there's, I I mean, I can't really even put it into words. It is incredibly profound. Um, And there's also something so human about the way we interact. You know, we're, we have a very close knit community. Um, You spend a lot of time with one another in very isolated areas often. And there's so many aspects of the human experience that we encounter just digging together. And then to see this very human thing in the ground, whether it's tools, um, tools that were left behind or actual remains, it's, it's really, really incredible. Hmm. Now, Canada is 
has a low uh, low population uh, mm -hmm. compared to other countries, compared to our land mass. In the United States, where you are, there's a high population for mm -hmm. a lower uh, land claim, so to speak. And I'm now, I know I'm not putting it into the right words, but when I do think of the Northeastern United States, I think of pavement, I think of buildings, I think of areas that have been touched. And so as an archeologist, where are you doing your digging? Where are you being contracted? Is it in places that have been paved over or is it in those unblemished areas that have yet to be discovered? Uh, both, really. Um, so yeah, a lot of people, when they hear about archaeology, um, they think about more what, what Nell does, frankly, which is academic archaeology. Um, the huge open swaths of land, you know, you, you travel to someplace, um, very slow, meticulous digging, lots of students, you know, an and academic background um, funded by grants and by schools and by, you know, students' exorbitant tuition. So um, what I do is very different from that. It's um, a strange in intersection of kind of blue collar, white collar work. Um, so whenever any sort of federally funded or fed federally permitted um, construction is going to go through, our government has what's called Section 106, which is part of the EPA. And it requires archaeologists to go through first to sensitize the area and determine if it was likely that there might be some sort of archaeological evidence um, of various cultures. And if it's likely that there, that there is something that's going to be impacted, we go through and we figure out what it is, if it's actually there at all, and then what to do to protect it. And so we ended up, you know, on the side of 495, um, which is one of the big interstate highways. Um, we've also ended up in the literal middle of the wilderness in northern Maine um, for a hiking trail. So it really run, runs the gamut. Um, I would say probably half the time we are in slightly more urban environments because that's usually where those big projects are happening. Um, you know, housing complexes, things like that, uh, road work, power line work, pipeline work, um, you know, a lot of those more controversial things. Um, but power lines also go through, through the wilderness as well. Um, so we're at this very odd intersection of uh, sort of industry and then untouched wilderness. Now, I don't know if you're able to answer this one, um, but is there a hope sometimes that, uh, I sure hope we find something here uh, simply because of that big corporation type, you know, they have their wants and their wishes, but we want in many ways to restore and make sure that people's histories are learned. Is there a hope in archeology span that, that there is that discovery that could perhaps stop business growth in there? Yes. Um, there, there's always a hope that it won't be damaged. Um, unfortunately, very little um, can be done to actually stop a lot of those large projects um, because if they're that big, they have really, really big lawyers. Um, but one of the benefits of the past few years and a lot of people, um, you know, really paying attention to right and wrong, um, especially sort of in the wake of the Dakota Access Pipeline and the nightmare that was that, um, a lot of people are starting to pay more attention to the optics of certain projects. So um, 
you know, which, which is good. Um, even if it's just sort of like, oh, this is just good PR. Um, we, we always hope that if there is something significant, we can find a way to protect it. Um, there's only been a few cases where we've actually rerouted things um, and said like, no, sorry, somewhere else. You can't do it here. And really that's mostly restricted to human remains. Of course. Yeah. Well, and uh, people who are listening, who are from my part of Canada, Alberta, we definitely know uh, about the Keystone uh, pipeline <laughs> and it is still a controversial subject here in the province. Um, oh, for sure. Most definitely. And uh, it's one of those topics with, because of my family and with myself and different beliefs, it's one of those ones where I'm educated on it, but I also do a lot of nod, uh, nodding of my head as well. Because <laughs> uh, it is a no-win situation when it comes up here, when it comes to arguments about this and mm -hmm. benefits of and. I would imagine as an archaeologist, you're stuck um, mm -hmm. with this because you you have an innate want to discover, mm -hmm. uh, but also realizing that you're discovering things or not discovering things in order for things to continue for progress yes. to take place. And it's that weird balance of it. Mm -hmm. You mentioned briefly before we came on and recorded that you were in Canada for a little while. Mm -hmm. uh, was that work related? No, I um, a previous iteration of my brain um, wanted to go into more of a, of a leadership sort of role. And um, I was briefly in the Renaissance College program at the University of New Brunswick, um, where you study the, the philosophy of leadership, which was very interesting to very naive V. <laughs> um, and ultimately, the, though a very cool program, it um, wasn't hands-on enough for me. And I came away feeling a little bit like it was a lot of sheltered white kids talking about how they were going to change the world. And um, there's there's some aspects of that that I kind of take, take issue with, um, that we do need a lot of people to help save the world. <laughs> Yeah, we need we need the people on the ground. And mm -hmm. when we look around and we realize that everybody looks like yourself and yeah. myself, it's it's weird. It's weird. It's mm -hmm. weird. And it's tough. And it's uh, how do we create space and how do we hold space and how do we elevate? And it's the hard questions that at least we're understanding and at least we're talking about it now. But definitely it's difficult. Um, going with your archaeology background, is there a part of Canada that you would like to explore? And uh, if you had that chance, where would it be? Alaska. Mm. I'm I'm really but into Canada, though. That's America. It's that U.S. centric mindset. Um, okay, I'm sorry. The Northern Territories. <laughs> Definitely the the Northern Territories. Um, I'm. I'm really into extreme environments, um, space. And I, I'm really fascinated about what it takes to live in extreme environments and what it does to the human psyche. And I would just really love to, to check that out. And though I don't really love the cold, I, I like the heat less. So I feel like that's, that's the way to go. <laughs> well, there's two things here that I have to bring up. Mm -hmm. One 
can the U.S. just finally give us Alaska and just be done with it? You know, it's (laughs) like, really, you know, Alaskans were wanting to come over the border (laughs) into that area so they can get their health care because they've been doing that for years. And the border clock and they were like, I can't see my doctor. I can't get my food. So can you just give us Alaska? But the other thing as well is here in my neck of the woods in Western Canada, for a month, we've had minus 30 degrees Celsius to minus 52 degrees Celsius Celsius with the wind chill. And so if you want to do an exchange program where I go down to your tiny suite and you want to come to Canada to experience, (laughs) call me. (laughs) We we did just figure out that it's currently like one or two degrees colder (laughs) here. Well, and all of a sudden now we're on a heat wave, you know, a Mm -hmm. heat wave where we're minus two degrees Celsius, but we're warmer than you. So we... Ah, I guess <laughs> we worked later because my my job is weather dependent. Um, you know, we're currently laid off for the season because the ground's frozen. You can't dig. And uh, it, it took until the day before New Year's for us to get laid off. And that's like it's happened before, but usually only when it's those massive projects that are like, I, I don't care what it costs. Go out there and dig. Um, and it, it was just wild. Like we kept just being like, yeah, I mean, we're we're supposed to get laid off, but like is the ground even going to freeze ever again? Ever, ever. <laughs> it was really we did, but it took a time off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and we started even earlier this year than, than usual. It was an incredibly long season and an incredibly grueling season um, sort of dealing with, you know, Oh, well we have to stay in hotels, but like COVID though. So yeah, it was, it, it's been, it's been crazy and the weather has been very strange and, you know, we're, I always consider us lucky because we get to observe the natural world on a very intimate level because we're, we're out there every day. So we're seeing all those tiny little changes. Um, but this year it's been really alarming because we're seeing not so tiny changes um, on a, on a much greater scale. So <laughs> this whole year has been like, well, this is like, are we going to start having a summer layoff because we can't dig in 103 degrees? Because, <laughs> Because that's not safe. <laughs> exactly. Well, here as a reminder, just to our listeners as well as here on YouTube, we're talking today to V.S. Holmes, an acclaimed novelist in the speculative science fiction world. We're going to talk more about their writing in a little bit, but I do want to make sure that uh, we bring their website to the screen, and it is www.vsholmes.com. V, what will people find when we go to your site? Well, you'll you'll find that I, I can't focus on one thing. <laughs> I, I always have to have these dueling worlds of the usually epic fantasy and then the hard sci-fi. Um, and I think that part of that is because I mean, a lot of science is just magic that's been explained. So they'll find... Uh, Two seemingly very different worlds and um, probably a, a lot of projects that I've started and then um, maybe maybe changed over <laughs> over the past few years. Well, and let's talk, and you brought up something that I want to go into for sure, but I do have to ask you one last question about yeah. the archaeology. From the outside looking in, mm-hmm. this had to have been a perfect job to have during the last two years with covid Am I correct on that? Um, yes and no. So 
we, we do work outside and um, that was very beneficial. Um, but because we, we do stay in hotels, um, mm. you know, and, and I have a condition that makes me a little higher risk when it comes to COVID. Um, though if I had healthcare, I could probably figure out more about what that was. <laughs> I can't Canada. Canada. <laughs> um, so it, it did make it better because we could actually go to work and I felt a little bit safer. Um, you know, aside from like the utter mental breakdown when we first stayed in hotels after being isolated, just <laughs> like this feels so unsafe. Humans everywhere, everyone's breathing. Uh, <laughs> but it it was also nice because you know it it did break up the monotony a little bit. Um, my spouse and I work the same job at the same company, and one nice aspect was because we're in the same bubble because we're married, um, we got to dig together. And everyone else had to dig by themselves and talk about wear and tear on your body. Like, oh my God, digging solo is awful. Um, so it, it was sort of beneficial uh, because we we still had our, our pit partners. But it also meant like, not only were we together all the time because of COVID, we were also together all the time because of work. Um, so very, <laughs> at least we like each other. <laughs> yes, that helps. That helps yeah. in the end. Mm-hmm. Well, we mentioned that in addition to your Dr. Nell Bentley series of books, you also have the Blood of Titans series. And it is very different from the Dr. Nell Bentley. I'm struck with the fact that I believe there is a difference in your writing style between the two series. Am I right on that? Yes, I think, um, you know, I definitely can wax poetic. I, I like alliteration. I like lyrical writing. Um, I enjoy very atmospheric scenes, um, but sort of that aside, uh, it's, it's definitely very different. And I also, my, my writing process is actually very different, uh, between the two. And part of it is, you know, Nell, though it it is third person, her books are very close third person. And I really have her voice coming through um, throughout all the books. And she is the only point of view um, protagonist. Whereas in my fantasy, you know, the, it's still third person and you're still getting in, into their heads, but there are multiple point of view characters and it's slightly more removed because of that. Um, so you're getting a feel for each of their different voices, but maybe on a slightly less intimate level. Um, than in in Nell's work and of course you know there's there's still swearing in in both but you know for Nell every third word is an f-bomb um and I think I have maybe three f-bombs in in one book in Blood of Titans Max (laughs) um and I, I you know I have like fantasy swears and stuff in there too um so so it is very different but part of that is sort of the world that I'm trying to you know convey the feeling of Well, definitely in your writing, you often explore how our personalities differ from what others and others expect them to be. So why is this important for you to explore in your writing? Because we are so different. And, you know, with my background as an archaeologist, I've seen how incredibly different people can come together and not just work together, but make the work better because they are so different. Um, a lot of my coworkers have very disparate backgrounds and, you know, seeing like, oh, well, you know, Nick is really into geology and like, I think geology is cool, but like a rock is a rock. 
And, you know, this person over here is, you know, knows a lot about um, Euro-American gravestone motifs. And this person over here has, has a biology background than me. <laughs> and, you know, they know more about bones and decomposition. And you can see how when we're on a site, not necessarily knowing what we could find, all of those different backgrounds really come together in, in a great way. And a lot of it is collaborative and we share a lot of, um, you know, our, our different expertise and that's how we get the whole picture. Mm-hmm. And the picture is so much richer because of that. And that's what I want to bring to my writing. You know, sometimes these people are coming from different backgrounds. It's a good thing. Other times not so much. Um, but I really think that's where the strength of communities lie. And that's, you know, something I wanted to bring into to Nell's books specifically because she's learning about that actively as her world completely explodes around her, sometimes literally. <laughs> I like my explosions. Um, but also in, in fantasy where I get into more of the um, psychological and political aspects of warfare. A geologist friend of mine who uh, listens to this podcast is <laughs> like me at home right now going, oh no, they didn't say that. <laughs> I think rocks are super cool, but like rocks, rocks are, are super rocks. cool and they're great. And we're going to backslide a little bit on that one a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned about community B and from learning a little bit about you, you do identify as being a non-binary human and your pronouns are they, them. Was this a community that was easy for you to find or was it a struggle? It was definitely a struggle. Um, you know, my, my parents, though liberal minded, um, had me at a much older age than a lot of my friends and, you know, came from a white background and I wasn't exposed to a whole lot in, in New England, um, both just sort of broader culturally speaking, um, and then also when it came to the queer community, um, now I, I use the word, you know, queer for myself. I've chosen to reclaim it. Um, you know, I wouldn't use it for someone who I didn't know was comfortable using it. Um, but for myself, I use it. And, you know, I, I knew that there were people who were gay, but I, you know, and, and I, I like my parents had friends, but it was very much like, oh, that's a thing over there. Um, and I don't think it was intentional on my parents' part. I think, you know, being older, you know, they came from the generation that lost a huge number of, you know, what would be my queer elders. And so it's sort of, well, it wasn't there because they weren't there. They died. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until high school where I sort of started to figure out, like, oh, not everyone thinks about their best friend that way. <laughs> Um, you know, and at the time I identified as, as a woman and mostly like, oh, well, I'm a tomboy. And like, I guess that means I'm female because like I have to be, and there's no other term for that. Um, and the more I got exposed to the outer community, you know, with the getting internet, um, that, that was the other thing is I, I wasn't really allowed internet or television or anything beyond like science documentaries um, until I was about 15. So <laughs> like the first time I saw TV, I was like, what is this? Okay. Who is this Britney Spears person? Like, what is happening? 
Um, Free Britney. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, she's she's great. Good for her. Um, but my like little brain was blown. And so it w- wasn't really until I started finding a lot of communities online where people would talk about their feelings and then use a label. And I'm like, what would I have those same feelings? I didn't know other people had those. I just thought I was a freak. Mm. And yeah, it, it was, it's been sort of a, a journey and I didn't realize, um, you know, a lot of the, the gender stuff until I would say the past, the past five years. And that's been a real revelation. You know, when you finally see someone else saying something that feels like it was literally ripped from your own chest um, and you have a word to go with the alienation you've been feeling or the dysmorphia, just like this, this doesn't fit what's in here. Um, That just completely blew my brain wide open. Um, And we were talking off air about, about Twitter and how it can be quite the cesspool. Um, but I owe so much to a lot of the people who were just, you know, open and vocal and proud about who they were and in, in a way that was so approachable and I could just listen and <laughs> have my, have my little leg cracked there. Yeah. Um, but it was definitely not something that I, I grew up with in so far as having words for it. I just knew I didn't fit and I didn't know why, but I didn't, you know, I didn't have the words or, the, you know, much of the community where I felt like it was something I could talk about. I think it's going to be fascinating for the archaeologists of the future, uh, especially when it comes to language and mm-hmm. vocabulary, yes. to be able to look back on these past five to ten years mm-hmm. and be able to find the genesis of where these words yes. really burst through and became quote unquote mainstream because we're not there yet. And it's been a common conversation on this show that the words are still to come that we haven't necessarily discovered the true words to describe everything that a person feels. Um, It's still to come. And so it's, it's a scary time when it, when it comes to the pandemic, but it's exciting when it comes to, our rainbow community learning more about ourselves and people standing up and saying, I'm here and I am non-binary. I am intersex. I am bisexual. However we identify and whoever our authentic, authentic self is. It's fantastic. It's just brilliant. And I'm jealous of those archeologists of the future who are going to be able to explore and in hindsight, knows so much more than what we know now. I hope so. I mean, it's it's been very interesting because so, so much of, of history is whitewashed and straightwashed. And the, the recently, those those two famous skeletons that, you know, were, were buried together and they were found, you know, uncovered, embracing each other. And everyone's like, oh, it's, it's, it's the lovers, it's the lovers, it's the lovers. And then someone was like, you know, both those skeletons are um, at least anatomically male. And everyone's like, oh, the uh, bros, the friends, the besties, obviously besties. And obviously, it's, like, yeah, okay. obviously. it's like gals being pals. Right. And, you know, I, I think that's one of the biggest issues with archaeology is the ego and the like, I know what's right. Um, and we, we can't approach anything without bias because we're, we're human. Mm-hmm. But I really hope that a lot of 
the groundwork that's that's being done and, and frankly being being redone because um, you know I think every generation it it, it is re, re rewalked I guess um, and you know especially with having lost so so much of our community um, to to AIDS but I. I think it'll be really fun as long as we can put aside that that ego and as much of the, the bias, or at least be aware of, of our own biases um, because of that. And there's there's a lot of really funny archaeology jokes about like I, I won't say some of them because they're they're a little irreverent, but um, about our interpretations, like the gals being pals. Like you know, you can you can find skeletons literally embracing, buried together, and be like, no, there's no no homo. <laughs> But guys, <laughs> it, it's there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, when I'm doing uh, lessons with intercultural awareness, I talk about sunglasses and that I wear yellow sunglasses. And I go through my life um, kissing my partner who is yellow. My animal is yellow. I put on yellow clothes and I just happen to have yellow in the shirt here today. My yellow car. And I go through life wearing yellow. And along into this world comes someone like yourself, and you obviously wear blue sunglasses. And I assume that you too uh, kiss your partner every morning who is blue, and you go out into your world in a, this blue area. But of course, myself wanting to discover who you are, I want your blue sunglasses. So I find them at Walmart, and I'm excited because I finally can find the world through VS Homes and see through their lenses. But I can't take off my yellow sunglasses because they're permanently attached to me. So I put them over, I put those blue sunglasses over top of my own. I open up my eyes and all I see is the color green. Green. And I'm really hoping that in the conversations that we have with people, as well as within our community, that we do explore that green space and that we explore what that means. And yes, it's hard for me to take off my yellow sunglasses, but I sure as heck can find that color green within it when I am in your shoes. If I'm doing that To Kill a Mockingbird scout character, uh, seeing things through Boo Radley's uh, doorstep mm -hmm. and see the world through uh, his eyes. Yeah. Um, hopefully we continue to do that or at least push people towards that because we need that so badly. Mm -hmm. Hey, question for you. Um, in doing some research about you, I found out that with your series, Smoke and Rain, as well as Lightning and Flames, uh, they've been remastered and put into audio form. So when you enjoy your stories, do you enjoy your stories or other people's stories in book form, e-form like Kindle or in audio form? I mean, any, any form that people can consume books. Um, you know, I, I think that's great. Um, myself, I am not auditory. <laughs> I'm, I'm autistic and I find auditory learning incredibly difficult. Um, you know, if, if it's something more of just like a, a story while I'm driving, um, you know, I, I can do it. All right. I, I tried listening to um, dark matter and the dinosaurs, which is an incredibly high tech, science book um and i kept finding like i 
I had to pull over on the side of the highway to like make a note and rewind it because it was just so complex that I couldn't learn that way. That's not a very safe way to drive. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not an audiobook person, though I think they're wonderful. Um, my, my grandmother was blind and the U.S. Library of Congress will send you free audiobooks if you are legally blind. And I just think that's awesome and fascinating that they do that. Um, but myself cannot. So I'm more of like a, an ebook or, or paperback person. Um, I have a condition where my joints dislocate a lot. So if it's uh, like a hardback book, it's, it's really, really heavy. Um, but I, also ebooks are, are so inexpensive. You know, I can sort of just buy a lot more than, um, than I normally would with, with paperbacks. Yes. That's the, uh, the great Sorry. part about it is with that, uh, the relatively cheaper price when it comes to the ebooks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's pushed myself uh, to read more that way. <laughs> Although I can tell you that part of this pandemic that killed me the most was not being able to go into a bookstore yeah. and just look at the spines of the books all perfectly lined up on that shelf mm -hmm. and just being able to strum my fingers across looking for that title. I You, you get to be surprised too when, yeah. when you go into the bookstore. I feel like because of algorithms and stuff, like you're only going to find what you're searching for or something directly adjacent to it, um, you, know, you know, unless if it's word of mouth. But it's you can't browse the same way. Nope. Which is, is what I've said. <laughs> nope. Well, last night we were supposed to conduct this interview, and then we had the great Edmonton blackout of 2020, at least in my <laughs> area. And we were stuck without power for four hours. And I appreciate you um, getting back to me so quickly and rescheduling for today. I went out on the balcony and I looked up at the sky, and it was this crisp looking moon. And, you know, Everything is silent around me, and it was beautiful. When you look at the moon these days, what do you see? <laughs> um, well, I mean, I'm, I'm going to get emotional for, for a second. Um, my dad was a big space guy. Um, he was fascinated by everything that had to do with science and space, and a lot of my love of science fiction and astronomy comes from him. And so about a year ago, two years ago. What is time? Time doesn't exist. Yeah, Anyways, <laughs> recently, um, a fellow sci-fi author, Ariel Sealing, um, reached out to me and said, you know, like, hey, I know you're also a super space nerd. And I had this opportunity um, to join this time capsule called Writers on the Moon. And I can't use the full, like, I think it was like 10, 10 megabytes or something. It was, it was, fairly large for, you know, condensed data amount. Um, you know, I can't possibly use it all for all of my work. Would you like to send something with my work as well? And of course, like I, after I was done screaming <laughs> about this opportunity, I said, yes, 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 of course. And hundreds of authors um, got together to send in small excerpts of their work and include it in this time capsule that is going on the Peregrine Lunar Lander mission, um, which I believe was supposed to launch in December, but it may have been delayed because everything is delayed these days. But it is this little, not just a time capsule, but this cross section of hundreds of authors' work, um, poetry, 
you know, maybe political <laughs> tirades <laughs> given when it was, when it was commissioned, um, you know, fiction, all sorts of things. And also, which part of what was so moving about it was, I guess, so many people instead, given this opportunity, instead of sending their own work, chose to send memorials of people who had passed. And so many that they included an entire other SD card with just memorials, um, which I think really speaks to when you're asked, what do you want to preserve? So many people answered, not me, but this person. Um, so I included an excerpt of Travelers, um, a small poem that I wrote about a primordial sea creature, um, and then also a memorial to my father who passed away in 2019. Um, and it was a, a photograph of him and just, you know, a, sh a short little few lines about him. And so I just, I just think it's so neat to include all of these different people, all of these different authors and just this great cross section. And also during such a tumultuous time, um, you know, I think a lot of people had a lot of high emotions going into the project. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, when, when I look up at the moon, I see my dad, but I also see this this time capsule and this amazing memorial that they put together. Yeah. Well, I've got tears in my eyes. <laughs> being able to send your dad and your dad's memory to the moon, to this other world that he watched and loved and taught you and passed that love down to you and you being able to create these worlds where characters that were inspired by your dad can live on. It's just moving and it's touching and oh my hormones, <laughs> hormones. Good lord, I you know, and I'm just an observer looking in. I just can't imagine the emotions that you felt once you found out the scope and the breadth of what was taking place. Yeah. When I, I was lucky enough to be friends with Ariel, who, um, you know, was part of, and I believe it was Susan, Susan K. Quinn, I want to say, was the author who put it all together, who was also like an, an astrophysicist to talk about like powerhouse of a person. Um, and just to, to be able to hear, you know, not, not just be included, but to be able to hear Ariel saying like, no, overwhelmingly people included stuff about others and people who had passed and family members that they wanted to immortalize that during such a dark time in, you know, at least our, our collective memory, <laughs> that that's what came out of it, I think was really, really powerful and sort of reminded me about what I, why I write and what I want to include in my work was, you know, other people and connection and how we are so much more than just the sum of our parts when it comes to community. I talked to a uh, young adult writer, uh, David Howard, um, the other day, and it he talked about connection and family and how he himself put a grandma character into his books based on his relationship with his own grandma as it's reflected. And so we talked a little bit about your self in the character of Nell Bentley. Is your dad, is your mom reflective in any of your writing at all? 
I wrote the character of Nell's mother, Mindy, um, partially because I have such a um, complex relationship with my own mother. And I sort of wanted to explore how two very different people, um, you know, Nell, Nell and her mother, could have a functional relationship um, and, and a loving relationship. And that's something that only recently my mom and I have sort of tried to um, tried to work on, um, you know, both of us overcoming our own headstrong <laughs> nonsense. Um, so definitely that. I would say that I haven't dared to put my father in in my fiction, um, though the third book was dedicated to him. He he didn't actually see that, but. In some ways, it's it's too too precious um, for me. But I think also he is in everything I write. Um, you know, I wrote the last two books of my fantasy series in the throes of sort of the, the pre grief of um, him being in, in home hospice, and then the aftermath of him passing, and everything about that book is just imbued with grief and love. And the whole book is just a, a love letter to goodbyes. Um, and I'm, I'm a huge fan of reunion scenes. Um, and so going through that and realizing sometimes there aren't reunions was, was really big. Um, and originally when I was plotting out Nell's arc, there was going to be a reunion scene between her and her father, who she thought was dead. Um, now, no, no spoilers here because, um, mm-hmm. I decided not to do that. And I decided not to do that after my own father passed, because I realized sometimes you, you can't, you can't go there. You can't have reunions. And so I guess, yeah, the, the long answer would be, I, he is in everything I write, but I haven't dared to include him as, as a character. Mm. We're talking today to VS Holmes and about, their writing, their archaeological background. Their latest release is a book called Heretics. And I just want to just read a little bit from the press release. Hot-tempered Dr. Nell Bentley is not cut out to save the world. After her last project ended in fire and death, Nell must put aside her distrust of just about everyone and embark on a lo-fi search for a deadly radio transmission. Earth survivors are torn between the austere superpower of IDA and the high-tech grassroots Los Pobladors. At every turn, more allies go missing and now questions where everyone's true loyalties lie. And on which side, Lynn will fall when a line is finally drawn. They need experts. They need firepower. But it looks like the only thing standing between Earth and devastation is now. Archaeologists, asshole and functioning alcoholic with anger issues. <laughs> go get the book, everybody. And go get the book that started everything, Travelers. Two questions I need to ask you right away, as we do need to wrap up the interview based on time commitments. Can a person read Heretics as a standalone, or is it necessary to begin at Travelers? at the very beginning? I mean, do what you want. <laughs> I I have had a several readers pick up the series with the third book, Strangers, um, and then also with Heretics. 
And both were like, oh, yeah, they totally stand on their own. And then when they've gone back and started at the beginning of the series, be like, ah, maybe not. Maybe I was wrong. Um, you know, I definitely think that if you're going to start a series, you start at the beginning. Um, a lot of the deep character aspects of Nell and of her interactions with, you know, the, the various powers in her world are really much more powerful when you've seen her at the beginning, um, at the, you know, even more of a mess than she is in, in the fourth book. Um, so I definitely start at the beginning, um, but you know, do what you want. I'm, I'm not the boss of you. Eat dessert before dinner. I don't care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I read a newsletter of yours and you said something that really struck me. Uh, you wrote how much I love the space between and the echoes and imprints we make in the space we leave behind. Can you explain more about what you meant by this? So a lot of archaeology is building a picture, um, not necessarily by what we find, but by what we don't find. Uh, I mentioned earlier that oftentimes when we come across human remains, there is nothing left but a stain. Um, and most of the pictures we build, we really understand what the picture is of based on what's not there. Um, and, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a complicated concept and it's very frustrating when you're trying to build a picture and, you know, you have backhoes breathing down your neck. And I think a lot of, a lot of what makes up society are these in-between spaces, these liminal spaces, um, the spaces that we build literally just to cross through. And with writing, I think a lot can be drawn from what you don't say or what you, you know, in, imply, but you're not sure. And that kind of goes back to what I said earlier about writing and how writing is asking questions for me and not necessarily giving answers. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Well, and based on this interview, we have captured an image of you and uh, where you've been your background of, of where you are now and of course excited to find out more about you in the future as well Me too. Uh, which is uh, just fantastic and again everybody you listen to the tales of 2s lgbtq plus to listen and learn about more people and i know that you're like me once again you've become smitten and that's always a good thing Last official question for you for this go around for this episode. Uh, if you were able to talk to the 15 year old uh, V and you just happened to be walking in a park and you saw yourself sitting on a bench and you're able to saddle over and just say a few words to them, what would you say? If I had to say something, mm -hmm. I'd say keep going. Um, but honestly, I'd listen. Oh, I love it. I absolutely love it. Everyone here at home and listening, I'm going to bring VS uh, website back to the screen, www.vshomes.com. You can also find them on a variety of social media sites, do punch in BS Homes, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can find out more about them, the archaeology, but especially the books. And when it comes to the books, we could talk for ages. 
And yes, I'm going to tell you this right now. Uh, one of the things that we are going to do here uh, starting soon uh, is we're doing Tales of the 2S LGBTQ Plus book club form. And definitely one of your books is going to be discussed. And uh, <laughs> we're going to get in a wide variety of people and just talk about our love for books and a love for the archaeological science fiction speculative that you do as well. You have a talent and it is brilliant and fantastic. You know it. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're going to meet again, VS, for sure. For everyone, again, I have to remind you to do press subscribe here on YouTube, as well as the other sites. Uh, my friend, one of my closest friends, Dwayne Holm, is always on my case, and I always forget because I just get caught up in talking to people. Uh, but do make sure you subscribe. On behalf of VS Holmes, uh, my name is Douglas Parson. You've been listening to Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. I'm here to remind you to be good and always text when you get home. Until next time, everybody. <laughs>